can't understand the origins of the United States uh, without understanding that spirit of dissent and protest, which is at its core. It is critical to the long-term struggle for black liberation that we engage in dissent that actually illustrates the kind of world that we want to live in. I'm not a supporter of the protest. Uh, no, I, I'm definitely a supporter of our rights. One of the things that I always thought was true was liberal, conservative, moderate. Americans had rallied around a consensus that freedom of expression is good. Civil discourse is simply when we are exchanging our views in a public forum with other people, we treat other people with some respect. Welcome back to Breached, a podcast about the American social contract. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jalshrasaria. We're releasing an episode every other Wednesday, and each one explores a different area that is commonly considered to be a component of a social contract. Our purpose is to re-examine what it means to have a social contract in today's world, and hopefully to start a conversation. We started off last week by talking about community. Who does the American social contract include? We interviewed Jin Park, Jenny Beth Martin, Clint Smith, and Mark Dunkelman, all of whom we thought had profound things to say about how we choose to include and exclude, elevate some voices while discrediting others. If you haven't listened to it yet, we suggest catching up before continuing any further. Today, we're going to talk about dissent. While you could certainly debate whether social contracts in general leave room for dissent, there is no doubt that it's absolutely central to the American social contract. You know, the Declaration of Independence uh, was a piece of protest literature, which was an act of dissent, that the country declared itself independent, wrote itself literally into existence um, through an act of civil disobedience. You can't understand the origins of the United States, and you could go back in history, but but certainly the, the revolutionary moment that produced the independent new nation uh, without understanding that spirit of dissent and protest, which is at its core. That was Dr. Tim McCarthy, who describes himself as an educator, historian, and citizen activist. He underscores the fact that, from the beginning, dissent has shaped the American social contract. People dissenting and speaking out against the status quo, women, people of color, LGBTQ people, labor organizers, and the list goes on, have influenced everything from who belongs in the social contract to which rights and responsibilities that contract should include. One of the reasons why I call America a protest nation is because I want people to see how central that history is to the history of the nation. That it's not the only part of the nation's history. There wouldn't, we wouldn't need all those protest struggles if everything were going according to the original plan. <laughs> if, if that equality and liberty was as, uh, as universally and fully uh, uh, enjoyed uh, at the moment of the founding, then we wouldn't have these, these social movements. And it's precisely because of the, the limitations of those original ideals and promises that these social movements have had to exist in the first place and have throughout the history of the country. Tim also spoke about how the right to dissent itself is part of the social contract, how in addition to using dissent as a tool to expand or strengthen the social contract, dissent itself is a substantive right for all Americans. 
in general terms, everyone has the right to dissent. I mean, if you take the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which literally had to be written into the Constitution in order for it to be ratified, right? The first 10 amendments, which become the Bill of Rights, are amendments that were immediately written into the Constitution as a, as a condition of its ratification. And the First Amendment gives articulates very clearly five freedoms, right? The freedom of press, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and the uh, of freedom to petition, right? And, you know, freedom of speech is right there. And, and you know, the freedom of the press is often in service to movements for dissent. Of course, it was never that simple. About a decade after the ratification of the Constitution, along with the First Amendment, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, which, among other things, permitted the prosecution of people who voiced or printed malicious remarks about the federal government. Fourteen people, all of whom were members of the political party that was out of power, and most of whom were journalists, were prosecuted under the act. Some were even imprisoned. Yet, laws like this have never lasted for long. So, while contested, the right to dissent is one that's been a component of the American social contract from the beginning. These two ways of thinking about dissent in relation to the social contract as both a shaper and a component itself, are distinct and yet deeply intertwined. The first one has a long history, as Tim described, and is still continuing today. We were really grateful for the opportunity to speak to one of the people who is continuing that tradition, Charlene Carruthers, the National Director of Black Youth Project 100, an organization that formed in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman in his trial for the killing of Trayvon Martin. I believe that the work that I do today is sits within the Black radical tradition. It is critical to um, the long-term struggle for Black liberation that we engage in dissent, and dissent that, is, that actually is, uh, actually illustrates the kind of world that we want to live in. There are various ways to, you know, say that this does not work for us. This is not going to be tolerated. And as an abolitionist, as someone like me personally, as an abolitionist, it is my duty to be engaged in collective work that dissents from and also creates and presents alternatives to uh, the status quo. Fortunately, unfortunately, depending on the day, the people who are historically marginalized in the world are often those who carry the brunt or the burden of dissenting. I was struck by Charlene's last point about groups that end up bearing the burden of dissent in society, because she also suggested that the structures of society challenge those same groups' very existence. And of course, the system of child slavery doesn't exist anymore, and people still benefit from it today, and people still suffer from the remnants of those systems in this country today, be it Jim Crow segregation, um, be it the economic segregation that we continue to experience here in Chicago, uh, mass incarceration across this country, those are all things that are still set up to tell us that we are actually not full human beings and will not be recognized as such or treated as full citizens in this country. And so choosing to survive and create. I think it's really important that we're not just like surviving just to live, but to survive and to create and to thrive and build relationships and to love other people is absolutely an act of dissent. 
in the face of so much adversity. The conversation about who bears the burden of speaking out brings up the question of how that dissent is valued within the social contract. In other words, even though everyone has a First Amendment right to speech, who practically has the right to dissent? And how do other people's reactions define the scope of that right? One powerful example is the anthem protests during the 2016 and 2017 NFL seasons. The protests began when San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick sat and later kneeled, instead of standing for the national anthem, in protest of police brutality and racial inequality. The reaction to these protests was intense. We had a chance to talk to one of the people who is at the center of this conversation, Nate Boyer, a former Seattle Seahawks long snapper and U.S. Army Green Beret. Colin, you know, had been sitting on the bench uh, in protest uh, for a couple of weeks then. And, uh, you know, I just, I just wrote the open letter to him, sort of expressing my opinions on the situation. Not really my opinions. That's not even the best way to put it. Expressing my experiences uh, and, and, and why I feel the way that I do through, you know, what I've been through. But also my willingness to listen uh, to his position and his experiences, because I don't know what it's like uh, to be anybody but me. And uh, so he reached out to me. He called me after he read the open letter. Uh, it went like crazy viral that he wanted to meet. You know, and so he, he sent an Uber to take me down to San Diego to meet him the next day uh, before they played the San Diego Chargers. Nate recounted the conversation for us and helped explain the real tension of that moment. It was this kind of unsure moment of where this all would lead. You know, and so I asked him about, you know, what are, what are his measurable goals? Um, you know, and then also let him, helped him understand that just because he says the protest or demonstration isn't about something, uh, it, it doesn't mean that's not how people perceive it. Like, you can't control how people perceive an action or a gesture. And we talked about alternatives, you know, and that's where the idea of kneeling uh, came about. And through our conversation, we kind of came to this middle ground. Uh, and not, I wouldn't say like a, you know, an agreement. It was just, it was something I suggested and something that Colin thought was still powerful and more respectful. And uh, so we just, we kind of, he kind of went with that. I'm not going to say we, I mean, it was his decision. And uh, I agreed to stand next to him that night uh, on the field with, you know, I stood with my hand on my heart like, like I always have. Uh, but standing next to him showed that I was, like, willing to listen to him, too, and that I respected his stand. Despite his involvement from an early stage, Nate told us that as someone who has a deep respect for the American flag as a symbol of freedom and hope, he doesn't consider himself a supporter of the protest. I'm not a supporter of the protest. Uh, no, I, I'm definitely a supporter of our rights, uh, and I am a supporter of our country uh, moving forward in a positive way and improving and getting better, because I do not think we're perfect. I think there's a lot of things in our country that need work, a lot of things, uh, you know, uh, racial inequality being one of them, uh, because that absolutely still exists. However, um, to understand that, that that flag and the anthem, they represent all those freedoms, and that, that flag and anthem is sort of a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. I mean, I've been all over the place. I've been to a lot of different countries and seen levels of oppression that we can't even hold a candle to in our day and age here. Maybe in our past, yes, uh, but now it's, it's, it's very different. And, you know, and, and, and then also recognizing uh, how difficult a job it is to be a law enforcement officer and how many of those men and women do a really good job. So 
it's tough. Um, but I, I absolutely support a peaceful demonstration if it's something you believe in. That's the rights that I fought for. Um, so I say more than pro, more than, than supporting the protest, I support uh, the rights and the manner in which Colin has done it. I do support that because, you know, it's never been about violence and it's never been about being anti-military or really even anti-American if people are, you know, listening to the message. Nate's response is pretty different from those of others who have disagreed with the protest. Even though Nate respects Colin Kaepernick's and other protesters' right to dissent, the public backlash from political figures, corporations, and the media suggests that a lot of other people don't want to recognize that right at all. thing about the anthem protest backlash that seems important to unpack is the idea that some voices are louder than others due to their access to a platform. The fact that freedom of speech doesn't come with a level playing field challenges the idea that dissent itself is inherent to the American social contract. Exactly. And one key platform is media, or the press. Tim noted earlier that press was often in service of dissent. And that's something that we've seen throughout history and into the present. Today, there is so much media available to the general public, and a lot of it is free, both to produce and to consume. Even though this phenomenon has been democratizing, it's also made it easier to manipulate and subsequently challenge the legitimacy of the press. We spoke to David McCraw, vice president and deputy general counsel of The New York Times, about the press's role in providing a platform for dissent. As the top newsroom lawyer for The Times, we thought he was a good person to ask what might be different about this particular moment. It took me a long time to get to the point of, of being disturbed by what was going on. And, and let me explain that. That it, One of the things that I always thought was true was liberal, conservative, moderate. Americans had rallied around a consensus that freedom of expression is good. <laughs> we can argue about the edges and you know what's allowed and what's not allowed and all that kind of stuff. But for people to, whether they're conservative or liberals, to have their newspapers, have television stations, whatever they need, that that, that creation of, of content and of, of ideas in the marketplace of ideas was important. And this attack is really taking on that democratic norm. I'm not as concerned about the president or his supporters changing the law, changing our interpretation of the First Amendment, having new libel laws, those kind of things don't concern me. But I'm deeply concerned about the erosion of the value. And I think this, the fake news charge, I think enemy of the American people, all of that stuff is essentially trying to delegitimize the press. And I think that's a very, very dangerous step. And the thing that's most disturbing is I think there's a receptive audience. You look at the the polls, 46% of the people in one of the polls, I think it was 46, believe that mainstream media makes things up. And mainstream media gets stuff wrong. But that's really different than just making it up. And I think that is one of those charges that untrue but believed by a lot of people really erode a democratic norm. It doesn't really matter how free the press is if people don't believe it. 
The importance of believing or not believing the press has significant implications for its use in service of dissent. On one hand, people can report on facts that challenge the status quo, literally speaking truth to power. On the other, people can also use inaccurate reporting to confuse the truth, making it hard to differentiate between what's real and what isn't, and in turn making it hard to know when to speak out in the first place. So-called fake news is one label that has emerged over the past year or so, and its use has complicated the distinctions between fact and fiction when it comes to dissent. I spent a, a big chunk of the fall talking about the, the, the two problems of fake news, and it's exactly as you're saying. There is truly a fake news problem in this country. People are, are making up stories and putting them on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter and getting traction, and no, the Pope did not endorse Donald Trump, and Ireland is not accepting immigrants who are unhappy with Trump, <laughs> resettling people in Ireland. It, it's an amazing number of stories out there just that, that, that are made up. The other part, though, is the one that, that you're suggesting, which is that the, the charge of fake news becomes in itself an attempt to delegitimize and undermine an independent press. And there was a time in this country when, whether you were left or right, you would have thought that was really bad because we all agreed that government was a necessary evil <laughs> and, and needed, to be, needed to be held in check. conversation with David about the two very different uses of the term fake news highlighted the fine lines that we're grappling with when we talk about any kind of dissent. The language that you use to describe something really matters. We came across a really compelling piece in the Huffington Post by blogger Stoss Walker, who writes about issues related to the LGBTQ experience as a transgender woman, about an incident that gets to the heart of this debate. What kind of speech should be protected speech? What kind of speech counts as dissent? So we reached out and spoke to her about it. So the incident was as follows. It was at Cleveland State University, which is Cleveland is just a few hours drive from, from where I live. I think it was Thursday, October 12th. And this was the day that the campus's first LGBT center was going to be opening. So, you know, that's a big deal. So on that day, no coincidence, obviously, at least a couple of posters and, and some reports suggested that there were more than a couple, but at least two, appeared in the campus's main classroom building. And they depicted a silhouette of a hanging figure, you know, somebody with their, a noose around their neck. And with a sort of a vacancy in their chest and a, a rainbow-colored heart to, you know, of course, symbolize the pride symbol, the LGBTQ community, was in that space. And then the poster had the caption, follow your fellow faggots, and then dispersed around the hung figure below it. It had statistics about suicides among different parts of the LGBTQ community, some of which, as it turns out, were inaccurate. Um, and then at the bottom it had this name group name possibly fascist solutions and then had this what I described as wannabe badass Nazi style symbol beside it you know what bothered Stoss even more than the posters was the university's response to the incident which she described as tepid 
Basically, the response was tied up in the First Amendment and the fact that all speech should be protected, even speech like the posters that Stoss just described. When we asked her about what she would do to deal with situations like this going forward, Stoss pointed to the need for a new social contract, a new set of norms around dissent, regardless of what the law does or does not protect. I, I guess, you know, I'm thinking about this type of speech in sort of the larger context of just the erosion of standards of civility. Um, and, you know, so the technicality that, well, yeah, it may be protected speech, but the larger issue of should we really be treating each other this way? And, um, you know, in the piece I, I come to, the civil discourse is what we should be trying to do, um, and, and that, in fact, the university president in one of his letters to the campus invokes. Um, so what does that look like? Civil discourse is simply – when we are exchanging our views, expressing our opinions, our positions, our feelings, etc., in a public forum with other people, we treat other people with some respect. You know, it sounds, it sounds like the sort of lecture your mother would give you in sixth grade, but you know, it's kind of not what's happening now. And um, <laughs> I, I think to, to bring in my own subject position, so to speak, you know, being transgender, um, one of the things that I'm really acutely aware of where, you know, respectful discourse is concerned is that underlying that, I mean, just as a baseline for these kinds of interactions is that we recognize in the individuals that were speaking to and or about their full humanity. Stoss didn't suggest that we shouldn't dissent or share our opinions when we disagreed. She did suggest, though, that dissent should allow for continued participation in the social contract, that it should allow people to move forward together, something that echoes much of what Charlene said about living our full humanity. There are many forms of dissent, and we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of contention and what are people dissenting from? Are we, and, and what is, what is the goal of one's dissent? And if the goals of one's dissent is to actually take away the dignity of other people, to take away the access to basic human needs from other people and to erode the safety of other people, then that dissent doesn't, it doesn't actually serve, um, the collective liberation of all people, and it doesn't serve uh, the project of creating a society where people can actually live as full human beings. And Stas's solution of civil discourse also resonated pretty deeply with the kind of respect that Nate advocated for. I think most of us are very reasonable people, whether we lean conservative or liberal. Um, but those aren't the voices we get to hear anymore. We're only hearing these voices of the extremes on, on, on the far left and far right. And it sort of, it pits us in the middle sort of against each other too. It doesn't lead to, you know, respectful uh, discourse, you know, which is something that we should practice in, in this day and age. Ultimately, the context of dissent matters so much. 
and it's often hard to know what counts and what doesn't, whether dissent is necessary or unpatriotic. As we mentioned earlier, there have been times in our history when speaking out against the government was criminalized. In 1918, Congress again passed a Sedition Act as an amendment to the Espionage Act. Much like the Sedition Act of 1798, it prohibited speech that undermined the government and the war effort. Eugene Debs, a union leader and five-time presidential candidate of the Socialist Party of America, was sentenced to life in prison for speeches he made against World War I. And he served almost three years until his sentence was commuted by President Harding. He was never pardoned. Even though there wasn't an act of Congress criminalizing anti-war speech after 9-11, it was still seen as pretty unpatriotic to speak out against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Tim told us about the consequences that he himself faced for being a pacifist just 15 years ago. When I was a graduate student finishing up my dissertation, um, 9-11 happened, and I uh, was very outspoken right after 9-11 against not only the war in Iraq, which hadn't even come down the pike yet, but the war in Afghanistan. And that was a very lonely position at that time. Like, there were very few people that I knew of who were opposed to Afghanistan and, uh, and, and also speaking out against the Bush administration's rush to war. That that was not something that people were generally saying with a full throat at that time. And I don't say this to sort of pump myself up as this, like, heroic figure, but to say that, um, you know, those of us who did speak up during that time understood the consequences of this, right? I ended up on this, this sort of basically a blacklist by this organization that was monitoring colleges and universities that Lynn Cheney was on that was a founder founder of, that she was a founder of this organization, and they published a list of 117 American academics who were short on patriotism. It's pretty astounding to think how quickly perceptions can change. In 2001, Tim was put on an un-American list. Just a few years later, in 2008, people said that Hillary Clinton's vote in favor of the war in Iraq cost her the Democratic nomination for president. Tim, too, emphasized the course of history, paraphrasing Eugene Debs. History works in mysterious ways, essentially, that we, that radicals are ultimately maligned and misunderstood in their own times. But then long after they are gone, garlands are woven for their graves. And that ultimately the people who are brave in the moment, right, who speak out against these injustices, it may mean that in their own lifetimes they are never valued in the way that they would like to be for their actions. Um, But then history will do that judging. Tim's last thought seems particularly resonant today. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what dissent means to you, how we should be using our voices, and what its role in the American social contract should be. And stay tuned for our next episode on safety coming in two weeks, where we'll explore the concept of safety through our country's debate around access to and shelter from guns. As always, thank you to our producer, Marie Valindo. The music you hear on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org, follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast, and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you currently get your podcasts. We're looking forward to your participation in this conversation. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jastrasarya, and this is Breached. Breached.